Thank you, Simon. That was a bit embarrassing, but thank you anyway. <laughs> so I am officially the greatest mom, and I have the medal to prove it. Even has a little locket. See, it says. That's just mom. So now it's official, you know. As Simon said, we've been working through our Mightier Than I series, which is going through the book of Mark. Last week, Simon was talking about the amazing works that Jesus did in setting people free from demonic oppression, from all sorts of things, um, displaying his great power at work. And then the week before that, um, our, the pastor from Door of Hope, Cameron, he spoke on the glory of Jesus and the transfiguration. And I think it's only appropriate that after after those two fantastic sermons on God's glory and greatness, we come to the disciples arguing. So let's pick it up in Mark chapter 9, verse 33. If you don't have a Bible, we have some in the aisles, otherwise we have the slides up there. So, and they came to Capernaum, uh, they being Jesus and the disciples. And when he was in the house, Jesus, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. You can almost see, oh, come now, we're going to have a moment. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And then John said to him, verse 38, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. All right, we're going to have some fun this morning. I have some stories, good and bad, that we will go through to talk about some of the lessons that God has taught me about what it is to be truly great. But let me start off by just noticing that Jesus doesn't rebuke the disciples for talking about greatness or arguing about greatness. He doesn't say, this is not something to aspire to. No, you shouldn't, you shouldn't desire to be great. He does, however, say there is a better way. And I want to just start by appealing to us just in today's context. We all can see that it's quite, it's quite true that we have this, great, this idea of greatness, all the competitions, the shows, Great British Bake Off, I love that, you know. <laughs> Britain's got talent, America's got talent, America's got the most talent. Um, <laughs> even things like marathons and ultra marathons and the Olympics. And I mean, we just are always trying to get faster, get better, get, make the most beautiful brownies or whatever it is. We're attempting or striving to 
get to the best, the pinnacle of what we can be. And I want to argue that that in and of itself is not a bad thing, that God put that inside of us. That is intrinsic to being human, is a desire for greatness. But how we get there is another story. And I wanted to just share something quite personal to me of what God did in this journey in my life. So when I was born, I was born in a very rural, very, I want to say backwards, but not backwards, part of South Africa, very rural. You drive for 45 minutes on a dirt road, and then you turn, and then you drive for another 10 minutes on a dirt road, and then you find our house, our farm. And I used to go to a boarding school. It was a very stressful, anxious time. The farming world was um, quite a stressful, anxious time as well. For my parents, we were in the middle of a huge drought in the 1990s. Um, I remember wearing secondhand shoes. I remember only being allowed to eat like one slice of cheese a day. You know, this is my mom trying to ration the household groceries. And with all the stress and anxiety, I used to read. I would dive into books, and I just used to eat up books, day, one, one book a day by the time I was like eight, nine, ten. And I read some of these books that have had such an, uh, an impact on my life. I read The Hiding Place by Kari Ten Boom. I read uh, The Heavenly Man by Brother Yun. Oh, my God. Goodness, if you don't ever want to feel uncomfortable, do not read that book. It is such, it is such a convicting, challenging, amazing story about this um, Chinese Christian who God appears to in a vision, and he gets a miraculous Bible, and he basically gets beaten, gets thrown in jail, they break his legs, but this angel escape, helps him to escape from jail, and he keeps preaching the gospel, and my little girl's heart was just like, oh my goodness, like I have to do something great for God. Another one was God's Smuggler by Richard Wormbrand, and he used to smuggle Bibles to um, places in Eastern Europe where it was illegal to own a Bible, and you could get killed, you could get put in jail, and they would throw Bibles in the back of the car and cover it with a, like a sackcloth, and miraculously they would get to the border, and the guards just wouldn't see. It was like an angel of the Lord blinded them, and oh my goodness, I used to dream. So this was my plan. By the time I was 18, I was going to speak four, no, by the time I was 18, I was going to speak four different languages. By the time I was 40, I was going to speak 14 languages. So 12.5 to go. (laughs) I'm not quite 40 yet, but I have three years, right? I can pick it up, 12 languages. So I was going to speak 14 different languages. I was going to live in a different country every year. So I was going to go and be a part of an amazing church plant, and I was going to learn the language and be awesome, and then I was going to go on to the next one. And I was also going to be a Hollywood producer, and I was going to, I was going to act in movies. I was just going to, I was going to write books. So I was going to write the book. Then I was going to write the screenplay. Then I was going to direct the screenplay. Then I was going to act in the screenplay. And then at the Oscars, it was, you know, best director, best actor, best everything. And that was going to be me. (laughs) So, when I was 24, I packed my bags, and I was like, I'm going to London, because London is the greatest city in the world. So, I was all by myself, and packed, you know, my parents said goodbye to me at the airport, and I remember, like, on the plane, 
just looking at that map, you know, as you can see the the airplane kind of going over the thing, and like London was getting closer and closer, and I was just like, ooh, like, this is a good idea. Okay, and I landed, and all I can remember is chimney pots and blue, like the blue, um, what do you call it, the tubing, like on the underground, you know, it's like they have, anyway, so you're on this train going along, and all I could see was just millions of chimney pots because of the rows of houses, and I just felt so small. I was just like, okay, God, this is going to be awesome. And it was. It was really fun. I got a job at the BBC. I got, I don't even know how that happened. I made friends with somebody who was a personal assistant. Anyway, it was just amazing. I got a role at a local theater. Like, it was just, it was amazing. Like, all of the crazy things that were happening. Anyway. Fast forward, I met this amazingly handsome young man at church, and um, yeah, we had our first kiss at Trafalgar Square, and it was very romantic. We're walking along the Thames. Eventually, he asked me to marry him, and I said, well, you have to read The Lord of the Rings first, but okay, yes. (laughs) And... Then we, you know, he was in ministry. His name is Simon. He's right here. <laughs> and we decided we wanted to start a family. And I, I, was exci- I, was, I was terrified. It took Simon about a year to wear me down. We wanted to have kids right after we got married. And I was like, oh, no, I, we need to wait. And he was like, I don't want to be an old grandpa. Please, can we... <laughs> please, can we have kids sooner rather than later? It took him about a year to wear me down. We finally, um, I, we fell pre- I fell pregnant with Isaac, and I was, I was excited, I was nervous, and I just remember thinking, okay, like, this is going to be a really important thing. Like, I know, like, having a child is very sacred. I had some really godly women in my life at the time who I just looked up to, and they were amazing moms. And I had a sense, I had no idea really, but I was like, okay, like, if I can impact one person's life for Jesus, like, surely your child is, like, the most, right? You know, you have the most impact. So I was ready, I thought, um, and then we had him, and I had this real conviction from the Lord that I didn't want to skimp out on my roles as a mother. I wanted to be there every step of the way. I wanted to be a present um, person in his life. So I resigned from my job after my maternity leave came to an end. Um, They were very gracious. It's amazing in the UK how they look after you. But uh, after my maternity leave, I decided I wasn't going to go back. And um, it was actually a really hard time for me. I struggled. I'm embarrassed to say how much I struggled. I found, I mean, it was beautiful and joyful, but it was also a lot of hard work. There was so much laundry and so much feeding. Do you know that children have to eat three times a day? (laughs) And, And when they're really little, it's every three hours. So you're, you're like a milk machine, and you're the laundromat, and you're, you know, kind of trying to keep yourself together, and gosh, trying to eventually learn how to discipline, like, no, don't stick your fingers in that, no, that doesn't, you know, the DVD player does not take bread, it doesn't make toast, like, anyway, I, I went through some really hard times where I felt lost in insignificance. 
I, I kind of knew, okay, God, like you can do something great out of this, but I wasn't using any of my talents and gifts. I had a lot of talents and gifts. I'd written them all out. This is what I'm good at. <laughs> I wasn't using any of them. I was wiping snotty noses. I was, gosh, you know, taking them for walks in the park and going down the slide a million times. And I really got quite depressed at times. And I just, there were times when I was just like, where's the nearest daycare? I, like, we're, we're going. We are going today. But God taught me something. I pressed into him in those times. And it was rough for Simon too. Um, I pressed into him and I had the sense that he was stripping away the things that didn't matter. He was stripping away the things that I was finding my identity in so that I could lean on him and find my sense of worth and my sense of significance in him alone. And I came to this point, and this is where I want to come back to our scripture. It's just amazing to me that Jesus says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And I, I didn't like being a servant, I wanted to be up there, you know, doing the big important stuff, the glamorous stuff, the fun stuff. Like, I don't want to be doing dishes. Like, I still struggle with it. I have to catch myself. Late at night, I'm like, dang it, the dishes are in the sink, and I can't even pretend to go to bed early so that Simon has to do it because he's out or something, you know? Um, and I have to catch myself, and I'm like, okay, Jesus, if you were here, this is totally what you would be doing. So buck up, Bardoni, and do the stinking dishes. So I wanted to say some things about greatness, and it's coming from a place where I feel like I have... After all that effort of getting this thing in my pantyhose, I can't use it. <laughs> it's really uncomfortable. <laughs> All right, number one, we were created for greatness, okay? If you struggle to believe this, I want you to know that God very clearly has laid out for us in the scriptures how important and valuable he thinks we are. It says in Psalm 139, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Ephesians 2.10, we were created for good works in Christ Jesus. Even Genesis 1, 26 to 28, he said that we were very good after he made us. And then he said, go, fill the earth and subdue it. Take care of it, cultivate it. There's a job to be done. If we look at the world around us, I want to argue that if we fail to see the greatness that's in us, we will fail to take our part. And there is so much that needs addressing in this world. If you look on the news, it's a bad thing to do late at night before bed. But if you read it, please read the news. Don't not read the news because it's bad. Read the news and let it, let it make a hunger in your heart. God, what would you have me do? What is my role? What is my place? But... 
in order to talk about greatness, we have to talk about who. Who defines greatness in your life? And this is a problem I think that a lot of us have, is we're living according to a standard. For me, my little 18-year-old self, I was like, okay, well, clearly Hollywood is the place that defines greatness. It is where the greatest things happen in the world, Disney, Marvel, oh my goodness, like I just, oh, I dreamed of that red carpet. But to my mind, that was, that was it, you know, I couldn't imagine anything higher. What is it in your life? What do you look to that you're like, mm, man, if I could just make that, if I could just get that level of recognition, then I will be, then I will be truly great. We have a warped sense of greatness in this culture. We look at the success of individuals and their achievements over their character. Francis Chan said an interesting quote. He said that we choose our heroes too quickly and for the wrong reasons. And I think that's very true. The sense of false greatness is always centered on self. How do I feel? How do I appear compared to other people? How do I look? And that is basically what's going to lead to insecurity. It's why the disciples felt so threatened. It's why John could say to Jesus, teacher, we saw someone else casting out demons in your name. Like, shouldn't we stop him? If you are feeling insecure, you cannot rejoice when somebody else is doing great things. When you understand your part that you play and when you understand that it's not about you, you can rejoice with somebody else when they are doing great things for God. To define greatness, we need to look to God. He is the one who made us. He knows the gifts that he put inside of us. He knows the strengths. You're really good with listening to people or you're really good at just knowing exactly what somebody needs to brighten their day or you're really good at motivating whatever it may be. He knows and he put it in you. So who defines greatness in your life? And we need to also ask the question, I was walking on my way to school and one of, Isaac, uh, one of Judah's teachers passed by and like, oh, what are you doing this weekend? Oh, you know, nothing. And what are you doing for Mother's Day? Well, I'm preaching. Oh, okay. Like, what are you preaching on? I'm greatness. She was like, what is greatness? And I was like, good question. <laughs> you should come. <laughs> I'm still figuring it out. <laughs> we look to the life of Jesus that he demonstrated greatness for us. So, what did Jesus do that was great? And I wanna say that I think there are three things that we can find out from looking at the life of Jesus that help us. We look to Jesus as an example and also as our hero. He is the greater one. He is the one that this is all for. So we look to him, number one, his obedience. He said in John 5, 19, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. It says in Matthew 4, verse 1, that he was actually led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tested. And then, of course, the one that most of us know, um, where he says in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, not as I will, but as you will. We see in the life of Jesus that he was motivated by one thing, 
to please his father. He put everything else aside, the approval of people, what made, what looked like something amazing, and he didn't care. He was single-minded and focused on pleasing his father in heaven. What are you faced with right now? What has God asked you to do in your life? That if you can do it, you know you're gonna be pleasing him. Man, I had a job at the BBC. Well, it started out good and then it kinda went bad because they were laying off a bunch of people in the fun roles and only the boring roles were left and so I got this like personal assistant job. Two years, I did my time in an office and I would cry in the bathroom, call Simon, I wanna quit, this is terrible. And God wouldn't let me quit. I prayed about it. I was like, please, can I do something else? And the answer was, well, it wasn't like, no. It was just like, mm, there's, nothing, there's nothing else. I couldn't think of anything. And so I stayed and I wrestled with this. Like, God, why would you have me in this boring job? And the people that were in my office were wonderful and the relationship that we had was really good. And I had some amazing opportunities to just witness to them and speak about God's love in their lives and just get to know them, even just make them tea. And I think, this is what I think, that sometimes God will have us do things that perhaps aren't the best fit for us, that perhaps are very, very boring, like taking care of a small baby. It's very boring. It's very sweet and very cute, but it's on the large scale. I mean, they're not going to sing you a song or dance you a dance or anything. Luckily, they're so cute, right? <laughs> but he does these things, well, obviously for our character, but we don't even know the impact that you might be having in the people around you. Often it's not what you're doing, it's what, like who the people around you are. Secondly, Jesus used what he had to serve others. He touched the untouchables. He spoke to the outsiders. He washed his disciples' stinky feet, healed the sick, allowed his body to be beaten, broken, and ultimately put to death. His is the extreme of serving others. And the crazy thing is that he was God, and he chose to do it. It wasn't like they manhandled him to the cross. You know what I mean? It wasn't like they tied him up and he couldn't kind of get, get free. He, it says, um, I can't remember which gospel it is, but I was reading it just the other day. It said that Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, went to Judas when they came with the guards to arrest him. And he said, do what you have to do. That blows my mind. The king of the world choosing to be mocked and spat on and flogged for our sake. It says in 1 Peter 4, verse 10 to 11, God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. Do it all with the strength and energy that God supplies. When Jesus says in the passage we just read, Mark 10, 41, he says, truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. 
I kind of think that's like Jesus saying, like, I wouldn't be upset if you give me a massage. You know how you, you say things like that? Like, oh, I, I wouldn't be upset if you did the dishes. Or, you know, I wouldn't be upset if you gave me like a hundred bucks. It's, I, I see it as him saying like, this is the, this is the least you can be doing. This, obviously, you're not going to lose your reward for doing something good for somebody else. And that speaks to me that we always have something to offer other people. Doesn't matter what season of life you're in, what job you're in, how much money you have, how tired you are, how sick you are, you always have something of value to be able to give to somebody else. And then my third and lo- the, the last point on just how Jesus demonstrates greatness is that it takes great courage So I feel that to obey Jesus, well, firstly, just to obey Jesus, but then secondly, to serve people, oh man, that takes a lot of courage. It's risky, it's uncomfortable, it's never when you feel like doing it. Oh man, tell a baby to go back to sleep and not be hungry, like at three o'clock in the morning, it just doesn't work. Or, you know, when you always say to people, oh yeah, come over anytime, I'm always here for you, but please only come on Mondays and Wednesdays between seven and eight, right? Obeying God and using your gifts and talents to serve others will take great courage. It took Jesus immense courage to go to the cross. It says that he sweated blood the night before, wrestling himself to be able to go through with it. It takes courage to allow God to use our pain. And this is probably one of the biggest lessons that I have had to learn, is that suffering and sorrow are the things that God uses to bring greatness out of our life. One of my favorite books, again, books, Hannah Hernard is Hind's Feet on High Places. And just very quickly, there's a... There's a girl called Much Afraid, and she dreams of going to the high places. And the Good Shepherd, it's like an allegory about a pilgrimage. It's kind of like the, uh, uh, what is it, Pilgrim's Progress. It's a little bit like that. And so she goes off on her way, and the shepherd gives her two helpers. He's like, would you like help? And she says, yes, I want help to go to the high places. And so he brings these two women, and they're shrouded. And then he said, she says, what are their names? And he says, sorrow and suffering. And she says, no, please, I don't want these. By the end, they're transformed into peace and joy. It's the most beautiful story. You should read it. It will make you cry. Um, but suffering and sorrow bring us close to Jesus. Philippians 3 verse 10 says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death. When we are close to Jesus in our pain, in our suffering, That closeness to Jesus is what releases his power in our lives. The power to overcome sin. The power to overcome apathy. The power to overcome whatever it is that is holding us down. God is the master of redemption. He loves to bring strength out of weakness. 
Hebrews 11:34 it's like the the hall of fame for all the saints you know it says time would not Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, David, all these amazing people who did great things. But it says, who through faith, they conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned into strength. My question for you is, what areas of brokenness or pain in your life is God going to use to bring greatness and beauty out of? Don't run away or think that somehow your pain or your brokenness is something shameful, something that you just need to get past or get over. In my personal experience, the brokenness that I, that I went through in wrestling with these things as a young mother, feeling so inadequate. Oh my goodness, I, I was a terrible mother. I was hopeless at cooking. I was hopeless at patience. I was, I'm just a terrible domestic person. I've learned. It's taken me like, what, 10 years? But I had to learn. And it seemed like, it really felt like a death, like a dying to self. But out of that... I have come to see that the things that I have been pouring my life into are of eternal value. The kids that I've been pouring my time, my energies into, no one else is going to judge that. No one else can even see. But God is the one who sees. And this is my final point. What is our hope? Why would we go through all of this? Because of course, you know, obeying God inevitably leads to serving people, which inevitably leads to sorrow and suffering, right? Am I right? Okay, serving people, other people, just, just all people equals sorrow and suffering. People are hard. If you really want to love someone well, it's inconvenient and it can really just take more than you think you've got. Our hope, and this was something that I meditated on. I, I kid you not, sometimes it was every 30 minutes. But it says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16 to 18, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. Remember how I said at the beginning, who defines your greatness? If God defines your greatness, he is the one who gets to tell you, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share in your master's joy. I have my eyes on that. Nobody else might see the things that you are attempting to do for the Lord. It could be that you get to the end of your life and nobody even knows what you have done or how you have overcome. But there is one who sees and he sees all and the Bible says that he is faithful to reward those who put their trust in him. Revelations 21.4 says, He will wipe away every tear. There will be no more sorrow at all. Our reward is His joy. 
I love how it says that. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with little. I will set you over much. Come and share in your master's joy. The joy of the Lord is our reward. And finally, Jesus doesn't just demonstrate to us what what greatness looks like in his obedience, in his service, in his courage. He empowers us. He didn't just die for us, come back from the dead and leave. He sent us his spirit, which is in our hearts that empowers us to be able to have great courage, to do the things that we know God has asked us to do, to be faithful with the little things and to trust that God is gonna do something much, much greater than we could ever imagine. Jesus says, take courage, I have overcome the world. I love it that they call him the Lion of Judah. If you look at my little Judah, he's he's a total bulldozer of a lion. And I like to think about God and Jesus in that way. So I'd like to end just with just summing up who... Who has been defining greatness in our lives? I mean, we, to greater extents or lesser extents, we're all on a journey to where God is defining greatness for us. But what is it that you are aiming for? What is it when at the end of your life, you are gonna stand before God and you're gonna say, God, did I do good? Did I do well? And he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Do you need courage to be obedient? Does it seem too much for you? He has given you courage by his spirit. It says that the spirit helps us in our weakness. I'm gonna pray for us. If the band can come up, that would be awesome. Can I ask you to stand? I just feel that God wants me to just impart a blessing on you. Father, I thank you that you have given all of us gifts, talents, treasures, things inside that maybe nobody else can see. You have given us these things so that we can be a blessing to the world. And I just pray that over us as a church, we have something to give. And Father, I thank you that as we look to you for greatness, to make greatness out of our lives, won't you take the areas of pain and suffering and won't you, you promise us that you will make beauty out of ashes that you will give us the oil of joy for mourning. And so for those of us here who are feeling broken and in pain, I thank you that we look ahead to the reward, which is in Jesus. And then um, lastly, if there's anybody here who maybe doesn't know Jesus, but who wants earnestly for their lives to count, to make a difference, to be great, It starts with trust. It starts with taking that step of obedience, putting your faith in the one 
who left it all to serve us, to serve you. And you can do that this morning. All it takes is saying yes. Yes to Jesus. Yes to God. Yes to his purposes for our lives. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. You're now listening to Grace City Portland.